Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. When Tim Kreider decided to rent a herd of goats, Tim insists that it was a friend's accidental reply all to an email that was the source of all the trouble. Regardless, here's what happened. Tim Kreider rented the goats for reasons he says aren't pertinent to the rest of us. And, and then he sent a mass email replete with photographs to establish that A, he really did have goats, and B, it was all good. He described what followed thusly. Most of the responses I received expressed appropriate admiration and envy of my goats, but the message in question was intended not as a response to me, but as an aside to some of the recipient's co-workers, sighing over the kinds of expenditures on which I was frittering away my uncomfortable income. The word oof was used. Anybody else have a lingering worry about being found out as a failure in the eyes of other people? or even just finding out what they actually think. Strangely enough, I remembered Tim Kreider's oof this week when I read another article about something called brain-to-brain -brain interfaces. Two guys are sitting in nondescript buildings in Seattle. One has a large magnetic coil pressed against his head that can induce an electrical current in the brain, and the other guy, a mile away, was staring at a screen while 64 electrodes in a shower cap recorded his brain activity. Now trust me, my comprehension of what I've just described is probably way, way foggier than yours is. But the result of the experiment was that when the guy in the shower cap concentrates just so on this dot on the screen, the magnetic coil delivers a pulse to the head of the other guy, and his hand jumps and falls down on a touchpad, which fires a cannon in a video game, and a virtual city is saved. Got it? One guy thinks something, and another guy a mile away does something. Now, the true believers of brain-to-brain -brain interface, people like America's mad scientist-in-chief, Elon Musk, these people think that human language is just too clumsy and imprecise as a means of getting the information from one person's head over into the head of somebody else. They'd like to link up our brains directly and eliminate this pesky miscommunication, whether it's whether it's emails or sidelong glances that we've resigned ourselves to living with. But here's the problem. What good is perfect communication of the truth from one brain to another one if what we fear most is being found out? Aren't we all goat renters of some form or failure deeper down, hoping against hope that nobody's going to notice? I realize some of you may be thinking that a brain-to-brain -brain interface is your only hope at seeing what flicker of connection is there is between rented goats, shower caps of electrodes, and the transfiguration, but here's my best shot. The transfiguration takes place in all three synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And in all three, it takes place soon after a really pivotal moment in the story. Jesus asks his disciples who the crowds say he is. And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? 
And Peter pipes up with the exactly right answer to this pop identity of, identity of Jesus quiz. He says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. So that's great, right? Usually Jesus is conveying whatever the Aramaic, Aramaic term for oof is about the confusions and misunderstandings of these disciples. But here Peter clearly got the divine email that was actually meant for him or somehow the truth about Jesus got from Jesus' brain into Peter's intact. No electrified shower caps needed as far as we know. So that's great, right? Peter knows the truth. But what follows would surely mystify Elon Musk and us too, if we're honest. To Peter and all the disciples listening, Jesus says, now don't tell anybody else who I am. And then he paints a dark but vivid picture of what it actually means to be Messiah, the anointed one. It means he's been anointed not to sit on a throne, but anointed to be an utter failure. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the important people in the realm he really cares about, the realm of his religion. And he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he says he'll be raised. Now, you and I are primed to think of the part about being raised as turning the whole story into one of victory instead of failure. But think about it. Why is being raised so great? If a friend told you they were going to be beaten, mocked, tortured and killed, but oh, by the way, three days later, they'd be alive again. How would you respond? Seriously, what's so great about being raised back into life in a world that did this to you? Would you even want to be? And then Jesus says that to follow him actually means walking that very same path, taking up a cross, being a failure like he was a failure. In Matthew and Mark, Peter says, Jesus, this can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Only moments after he's named him as the Messiah. Herbert McCabe says, like Peter, we're always trying to find ways in which Jesus wins. He says, if we can't see him as politically successful, then we think of him as spiritually successful. If he wasn't a conquering hero, and he was a heroic martyr who triumphed over his persecutors by his calm resignation in the face of suffering. But he didn't, of course. He broke down and sweated with terror in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wasn't a spiritual success either. By the end, he had no disciples left. They'd all deserted him. Jesus was an outstanding failure. And that's how he shows us the meaning of God. That is what the transfiguration is all about. Because we can only appreciate the transfiguration in this context. The context of the abject failure of Jesus' life, according to any sane, recognizable human standard. The transfiguration, you see, is a story with all kinds of echoes and illusions, isn't it? It looks a lot like Jesus' baptism, when another voice from heaven announces, This is my son, my chosen Listen to him. And it's got all the trappings of an Old Testament encounter with the divine as well. It's not subtle. Moses is here, the first person to shine with glory from being in the presence of God on a mountain. Elijah, too, the prophet who left the earth, not in death, but in a flaming chariot, and people thought would return again to make things right. It also foreshadows a crucifixion 
where sleepy disciples are trying to stay awake in another intense moment with their Lord. In other words, the transfiguration piles on all the details it can muster to show this. This is really God's presence among us. Because we're going to need shining faces and dazzling white clothes and long gone prophets and a lot more to believe that this failure of a life of Jesus just described is going to be what the presence of God looks like in the world. Herbert McCabe presses a little further. This is not the kind of spectacular failure we all really know as a success. It's just the common or garden failure that comes of being human. Jesus died of being human. What was outstanding about him was just that he was more intensely human, more intensely one of us than we dare to be. He lacked the illusion and deceptions by which we try to protect ourselves from our humanity, try to protect ourselves from our failure. He was like us in all things but sin, in all things but self-deception. Do you see why we might have to lose the self-deceiving lives we've been making for ourselves if we're ever to see a God like this one? Surely this is why Jesus couldn't let Peter and his disciples be satisfied just with some accurate information in their heads about what the Messiah, who the Messiah was. Christians on the left and right and everywhere in between tend to treat our faith as possessing some essential information about God or ourselves or the world. We just agree on some of the disagree on some of the details. But Jesus says this isn't the way God works at all. In fact, God is going to show up unambiguously, shining, glowing on a mountain, but show up as an utter failure so that we might begin to believe that if we're to encounter this God, we're going to have to do so in the mess and muddle and pain of human relationships in this broken and unjust world. I know we like stories with happier endings, but the story isn't meant to give us a happy ending to look forward to. It's meant to tell us where the holiness is in our lives right now. And as long as we think it's in the admirable selves we construct for the same world that crucified Jesus of Nazareth, we won't get it. The good news is that God wants to meet us in the lives we've got, not in the ones we think he wishes we had. Which kind of upends our ideas about baptism, doesn't it? Baptism isn't about creating some brain-to-brain -brain interface with the divine that washes sin and untruths out of these little baptized minds. It's about welcoming another frail human being into the household of God, which is a household of failures like you and like me and like Jesus himself. It's not a household with standards they'll have to live up to in order to be members. It's not a household they'll have to ace pop spiritual quizzes to keep their memberships renewed. In fact, by baptism into the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're really saying that there is nowhere you can go to escape the embrace of this God. And the only work of Jesus's church is to live out the strange good news by whatever means we have. To have these children stay close to us so they can learn in the deepest parts of themselves that even in the messy imperfections and failures of their lives, we will not abandon them. Because we've not been abandoned by the God who showed us who he was by being more intensely human than we dare to be. Not by protecting himself against failure, but by walking alone to the far end 
of the darkest road of failure there's ever been. 188 feasts of the Transfiguration ago, Calvary became a tiny outpost of the Episcopal branch of Jesus' church. It's worth bringing our blankets and our font and our lawn chairs to this splendid place to celebrate, I think. But only if we remember who we're baptized to be. Only if we remember that our baptismal promises are about being a community of people whose imperfect but truthful lives gives each of us the space to let go of our self-deceptions and our delusions so we can actually begin to believe that God would race right down that dark road again today, even if the only lost, failed soul at the end of it were you. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.